Migration Conversations is a podcast that invites persons to share their migration stories. Hosted by myself, Professor Jamie Liu, each episode is an in-depth conversation with people who have experienced the Canadian immigration system or other migration regimes up close. We talk to migrants, immigrants, lawyers, policymakers, advocates, and experts. We hope that these conversations shed light on the challenges migrants face through their own voices. Welcome to this episode of Migration Conversations. Joining me is Michael Bosson, a lawyer with Community Legal Services here in Ottawa. Today, we're going to be talking about the Safe Third Country Agreement, or colloquially known as the STCA. He is currently on the legal team that challenges the constitutionality of the STCA and has also been a member of legal teams intervening on behalf of organizations like Amnesty International and the Canadian Council for Refugees in cases like Sharkawi, Ezekola, Suresh, among others. Michael's also a very good mentor and a resource, having taught immigration and refugee law for many years as well. Welcome, Michael. Um, I would like to start by asking you the topic of this episode, which is the Safe Third Country Agreement. Can you tell us a little bit about what this agreement is, when Canada entered into this agreement, with who, and what does the agreement actually entail? So Canada, um, the Safe Third Country Agreement uh, was finally entered into with the United States. It's an agreement between Canada and the US in 2004. There had been a number of attempts before that, uh, that Canada wanted to get the US into enter into an agreement like this. Uh, it didn't happen until really after 9-11. Um, the Safe Third Country Agreement um, uh, stipulates that refugee claimants coming to Canada from the United States at a land border, it only applies to, you know, that, 49th parallel and all those other, you know, land uh, borders between Canada and the U.S. Anyone coming up to the to Canada from the U.S. and vice versa, um, unless they fit into certain exceptions, are required to go back to the country from which they came uh, and make their refugee claim there. So as you can imagine, <laughs> there's not a lot of people going from Canada to the United States making a refugee claim. There's a lot coming up from the United States into Canada. And you may wonder why did the United States ever agree to this? Um, well, really it was part of a bigger package that Canada and the United States entered into after 9-11. It had a lot to do with sharing of information around security. And this is what Canada got back in exchange for, for that. So again the 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 object of the of the agreement is that canada and the united uh, states will share responsibility for refugee determination um so again um unless you fit into one of the exceptions and and the exceptions the biggest one is if you have family here and family is defined very broadly if you come to the border and you say my uncle is a permanent resident or a citizen or even a refugee claimant or a closer relative, they will let you in, but otherwise they're gonna send you back to the United States. And that's what the agreement is about. Thank you, Michael. I wondered if you could comment on the effect the agreement has had on how people have been crossing the border, especially after the election of President Trump, we've seen a lot of people crossing irregularly. Could you comment on the role that the agreement had on this? Well, 
by irregular, you mean that people are coming across the border, not at those border posts where people are expected to cross and where we want them to cross. And they're doing that to avoid the safe third country agreement uh, because they know that if they don't fit into one of those exceptions, uh, they're going to be turned around and sent right back to the United States. And particularly under President Trump, uh, people did not want to stay in the US for a variety of reasons. Uh, and so they were crossing in great numbers um, across the border from Quebec, uh, from uh, upper New York State into Quebec uh, and Western Canada, all across the Canadian US border. And so we, you know, we had this phenomenon of thousands of people crossing, as you say, irregularly uh, from the States into Canada. And one of the primary reasons for that was, as I said, to avoid uh, being caught by the Safe Third Country Agreement. Thank you, Michael. Um, students of refugee law may not know that this agreement has been challenged in the past, um, shortly after the agreement came into effect. I wondered if you could talk about this previous challenge to this agreement um, and why that legal challenge was not successful. So um, in 2006, um, three public litigant parties, the Canadian Council for Refugees, Amnesty International, and the Canadian Council of Churches, along with an anonymous um, claimant who was in the United States but wanted to come to Canada, whom we called John Doe, uh, made a challenge to the Safe Third Country Agreement. And the legal argument that was made at that time was uh, because the United States, in fact, is not really a safe place for refugees for a variety of reasons, um, that the act that, that the that the agreement itself was ultra virus, meaning it was basically an illegal agreement. Um, it was outside the law. And so it went to court, it went to federal court. Um, there was about 150 page judgment issued by the federal court judge. And he found for all sorts of reasons that the United States at that time was not a safe country. Um, too many refugee claimants were in detention, the way that they treated female uh, claimants based, who were making claims on the basis of gender was really unfair. They had certain rules in the United States, such as this one year bar, which meant that if you didn't make your claim within a year, unless you fit into some small exception, you, you were barred from making a refugee claim. All sorts of things that were happening in the States that didn't happen in Canada. Anyway, he found that the United States was not safe and therefore found that the law was ultra virus. The government, not surprisingly, <laughs> appealed that decision. It went to the Federal Court of Appeal and the Federal Court of Appeal dealt with it on that very narrow ground of whether a law is intravirus or ultravirus. And when they looked at the legislation, the legislation said for Canada to designate a country as safe, it had to consider certain factors. Uh, is it a signatory to the Refugee Convention? Is it a signatory to the Convention Against Torture? Uh, generally, what is its human rights practices? Um, you know, things like that. And the Federal Court of Appeal said, well, uh, we, we considered those things, uh, <laughs> whether in fact, you know, that's still the case, as long as the cabinet considered those things before it designated the United States, the law was legal, the law was intravirus, and that was the end of their analysis. They did not even consider all of those things that the federal court judge, Justice Phelan, considered about gender and about detention and about the one-year bar. Um, none of that was considered by the federal court of appeal. They looked at it on very narrow legal grounds and they overturned the uh, decision. Uh, leave was sought to the Supreme Court of Canada and the Supreme Court denied leave. Yeah, and it's been quite some time since that decision has come out. Why is it now that lawyers, advocates, claimants have decided to bring this issue to the court again. Um, I wonder if you could comment on why uh, there's been an increased activity at the border and why the SDCA has become an issue, not just in legal circles, but in 
public policy and in, certainly in the imagination of, of the media? I think it really goes back to the election of Donald Trump as president of the United States. Um, during his campaign for president, he uh, used a lot of anti-immigrant and a lot of anti-refugee rhetoric. He um, took office in January of 2017 and within a week of becoming president, he issued three executive orders all aimed at refugees. Um, he infamously uh, issued uh, the Muslim ban or the Muslim bar. He basically said refugees from seven uh, countries where the, the Muslim po uh, population is predominant uh, were no longer welcome in the United States. Um, he vastly increased the powers of uh, officers in the United States to arrest people who were making refugee claims, to detain people who were making refugee claims, making it much more difficult for people who were, were arrested to get out of detention. Um, and then he brought in, his third executive order was to build the, you know, the famous wall between United States and Mexico, uh, which included a provision that said, if you're coming up from Mexico to the States to make a refugee claim, we're going to send you back to Mexico, uh, you know, while we determine whether you are a refugee or not. So he gave a very clear signal from the get-go um, that he was intent on limiting the number of refugees in the United States. Uh, the United States was no longer welcome a welcoming place for refugees. He suspended the U.S. refugee program. He cut the number of refugees that the United States was going to accept uh, in half. Um, so people got afraid uh, and started to come up to the Canadian border. And as we said before, in part because of the Safe Third Country Agreement, uh, started to cross all over the place uh, in an irregular fashion. Thank you, Michael. You are on the council team for the current challenge. Uh, the federal court released its decision on uh, July 22nd. And this legal challenge, uh, the, dis or the federal court decided that the STCA violated the Section 7 rights of refugee claimants. I wondered if you could talk first about how this case got to the court. Um, and then what were the legal arguments that uh, your team had put forward to argue that the STCA was unconstitutional? Sure. Um, so again, this very same three public uh, interest litigants who tried to overturn the Safe Third Country Agreement in 2006-2007, Canadian Council for Refugees, uh, Amnesty International, and the Canadian Council of Churches got together the first time that the challenge was made, one of the criticisms that the court made um, was that there wasn't an, any individual who actually had come to the Canadian border and had been turned away because of the Safe Third Country Agreement. As I said, there was a, a, a John Doe, but he never came to the border. He wanted to come to the border. He wanted to come to Canada, but never did. And so this time, uh, there was a concerted effort to try to find some individuals who were affected by uh, the Safe Third Country Agreement. Um, there was a family, uh, a mom and kids from El Salvador. Uh, they were fleeing gang violence in El Salvador. Uh, the woman had been brutally raped, um, threatened, um, really was escaping for her life with her kids, um, came to the Canadian border and initially was told, you're not eligible to come into Canada at this time. Uh, you know, we're not even going to take your claim. I, I, you know, I recommend that you go back to Buffalo. So she went back and while she was at that, you know, uh, just across the border in the US, she contacted a lawyer in Toronto who contacted the Canadian Council for Refugees and Amnesty and got people involved in her case um, she came back to the border and made a claim and was told she was not uh, admissible um, on the basis of the Safe Third Country Agreement. 
and then immediately filed an application to stay that order. And that's what allowed her to come into Canada. So that was the beginning of this litigation. Later on, two other individual applicants joined, a family from Syria um, and uh, a young woman from Ethiopia. So all together, the three public interest litigants and the three individual families or individual litigants joined forces. Um, we made similar arguments uh, that we made the first time around, um, but um, not quite in the same way. So we did argue section seven, uh, the right to life, liberty and security of the person. Um, our argument basically was that when uh, claimants are sent back to the United States, uh, because of the laws in the United States, because of the fact that so many asylum seekers in the United States are kept in detention, um, because of the conditions of the detention down there, um, and because of all sorts of other things, you know, such as what Trump was doing in the US, the argument was that that increased the risk um, of them being sent back to their country uh, to face persecution. <clears throat> and simply the fact that whenever anyone was coming to the Canadian border now uh, and was being sent back to the United States, they were automatically being detained and held in detention. And so we said that's liberty, uh, the conditions in, in which they were held in detention, that's security of the person. Um, and we argued that the, you know, the law, the state third country agreement is overly broad, it's grossly disproportionate. In other words, it's not in uh, accordance with the laws of fundamental justice. So we said people who are sent back to the states, their section seven rights are infringed. We argued section 15 as well. Um, and that's a long story about how gender is treated in the United States. And I don't know if you want me to get into it, but um, basically for a long time, women who were making claims for refugee protection in the United States were not accepted because gender is not one of the five grounds uh, set out in the Refugee Convention for protection. It's not race, religion, nationality. Well, according to the states, not membership in a particular social group or political opinion. In Canada, for years, we've been accepting gender-based claims as based as part of particular, a member of a particular social group. But for many years in the States, that wasn't the case. There was a landmark decision in 2014, I mean, just a couple of years ago, uh, called ACRG, where the court, uh, the Immigration Appeal Court in the States, finally accepted that a woman could be a refugee on the basis of domestic violence and very serious domestic violence. That decision, however, was narrowly construed by other decision makers. For example, the, the woman in that case was married to the, her persecutor. And in subsequent cases, for example, oh, because it was her boyfriend and they weren't married, um, that they distinguished that from ACRG. Um, Another case, you know, where the, the, the couple had been married and now they were divorced and it was the ex who was the agent of persecution. Again, the court distinguished that. So it was not a great situation to begin with. Um, and then in 28, but, but it was better than it had been. In 2018, there was a woman named A.B. Um, whose uh, claim had been um, accepted on the basis of, uh, I can't remember if it was accepted or denied, but it went up to the appeal division and um, the minister, the attorney general of the United States, Jeff Sessions at the time intervened in the case and basically said, women who are fearing gang violence, women who are fearing domestic violence are not refugees, basically. And that's what happened and that's what was the decision in the case um, and that really put a chill into claims of that nature and so we basically argued that um, the laws are discriminatory against women in the United States uh, they're not being treated equally uh, and their section 15 right to equality and equal treatment under the law were being violated by being sent back to the states lastly we we revitalized our, our virus arguments. And uh, we argued again that the law was ultra virus. Uh, this time we said 
Well, yes, at the time it was promulgated, the, the Federal Court of Appeal has said, yes, it was legal, it was intravirus, but the, the legislation requires that safe third, uh, safe third Country Agreement to be reviewed regularly. Uh, and for a number of years, uh, and by cabinet, uh, and for a number of years, cabinet did review the agreement, but then in 2015, they sort of changed the procedure and then they only reviewed it you know, when circumstances required it to be reviewed. And we basically argued that, you know, the law was no longer uh, intravirus uh, because of that review process wasn't being adhered to. Um, and that really what was going on in the United States was not keeping up with the spirit of the agreement, which is that both countries respect those international human rights conventions that was no longer happening. The government knew it was no longer happening. I mean, the United States was locking up children to separate families, to deter claimants from coming to the States. All sorts of horrible things were happening that the government knew about. And so we argued that even if at, the, you know, at its promulgation, it was intravirus and legal, it no longer was. Those were our three big arguments. That is a <laughs> rock too. Exhaustive. <laughs> Thank you for summarizing that. <laughs> I wanted to note that having looked at the record uh, myself, that there was a lot of, um, I would say, social evidence presented to the court. I wondered if you could comment on the kinds of evidence that was gathered for the litigation, particularly the affidavit evidence that uh, the team was able to collect. Uh, I think that was very important aspect to how the court was convinced that charter rights were violated. So we, um, we had a number of varieties or different types of evidence that we gathered. Um, we had uh, eight or nine now, I've lost count, uh, experts um, from the United States and people who had expertise in US immigration and asylum law, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you know, university professors um, who talked about the deficiencies in the U.S. system and who explained the U.S. system to the court, but also explained the deficiencies in them. Um, we had the individuals, uh, applicants, the family from El Salvador, um, the young woman from Ethiopia, um, the Syrian family, they swore affidavits about their experiences. We were able to get um, a number, about 10 affidavits from people who were in or had been in detention in the US uh, as a result of the Safe Third Country Agreement of having been sent back. And they talked about their experiences of being arrested, of being detained, uh, the conditions in the prisons. Um, we had experts on uh, gender, on how gender claims are dealt with in the United States. Uh, a professor from California. We had uh, experts on prison conditions, on people who, in organizations in the States, where that was their, their focus. We had affidavits from lawyers who worked on the US-Canada border, who knew how frequently um, returnees from under the Safe Third Country Agreement were being arrested and detained, how difficult it was for them to make bail, um, how difficult it was for them to communicate with their lawyers, uh, how difficult it was for them to basically uh, make their claims um, because of all the restrictions that they were under. So we had those affidavits as well. Um, plus, you know, the other evidence is, you know, the, the government produced its own experts and we were able to cross-examine them and we had the transcripts of all of those cross-examinations and got certain admissions from them that were helpful to us in our case. Um, so that was really, that was our evidence, you know, in, in a nutshell, that was our evidence. And it was like, you know, 20 boxes full of evidence, but that was it. Yeah, and that's, it's a great testament to um, how you build a persuasive case, especially when you are using the lived experiences of persons subject to a particular law. Um, 
I wondered if you could now turn to Justice McDonald's decision at the federal court. Um, she found that the STCA violated Section 7 rights of refugee claimants, but she chose not to deal with the Section 15 argument. Um, and I wondered if you could comment on uh, the salience or the significance of the Section 7 finding, but also uh, what your thoughts are on her neglecting the Section 15 aspect. Uh, first of all, I want to say that um, <laughs> this case was argued in November 2019, and it came out, as you said, at the end of July. And we had no uh, prior notice that this decision was coming down. And it came out <laughs> around 9.30 that morning. And uh, personally, I was on a Zoom you know, meeting, and you know, you know, sometimes when you're on Zoom, you're also watching your emails. And I saw that, oh my God, this decision had been released. And I had another call at 10. And, and, this, and I noticed this about 10 to the hour. And so I was quickly scrolling down to <laughs> see whether we had won the case or not. So it was quite, you know, unexpected in the sense that we didn't expect the decision to come out on that day. And the decision was, was really a, a great relief and a great reason to celebrate. So that's just putting the, that little personal aside. Um, she, um, I'm trying to remember the question, but uh, Justice McDonald found uh, that uh, the Safe Third Country Agreement did violate um, the, the Section 7 rights of people who were being returned to the United States pursuant to the agreement. Um, she focused uh, almost exclusively on the fact that um, people coming to the Canadian border, once they were found to be ineligible to have their claim referred to our refugee protection or determination system, um, and, were being, and were sent back to the United States, um, they were automatically, in almost every case, put into detention uh, and kept in detention for uh, a significant period of time. And she focused on that. that. And that was, to us also, one of the clearest arguments as that being a denial of liberty. Um, you know, you lock people up for no other reason than that they are making a claim for protection. They're not criminals, they're not terrorists, you know. They're just people seeking protection. And so that was a big deal. And she focused very much on that. And those sort of individual statements that you referred to uh, were very persuasive. Um, and she was, I, th I think, quite moved by, by them. Um, it's interesting because uh, the hearing was five, day, five days long. And I would say during that five days of hearing, the judge asked maybe two questions. You she was as taciturn as, as an owl. Uh, it was so hard to read her, what was going on in her head. And so when you read the decision, you, you saw that, you know, she's human. She was really touched by, um, by those stories. And, and they were quite graphic in their detail of, of the conditions that people were in and, and how that affected them individually. Anyway, um, so she found that their liberty was, was infringed by being automatically detained. And then she focused on the, the conditions in detention. Um, people complained about the fact that the detention centers were extremely cold. Um, one of the affidavits talked about how the, the detainees would huddle together under a, one blanket to keep warm and how the guards would come along and take the blanket away. Um, how, um, the young Ethiopian woman, uh, Ms. Mustafa, who was one of the claimants, or one of the applicants, um, is a Muslim and, and was forced to eat pork. And so she, she didn't want to eat. She lost 15 pounds. She was kept in solitary confinement for a week. Um, people were not getting appropriate medical attention that they needed. People were getting medically examined in shackles. And so they were avoiding getting uh, a, a medical care because they didn't want to be chained. Uh, while they were undergoing an examination. 
So she talked about all of that in her decision. And she also talked about the fact of how, you know, the barriers uh, put up between claimants and their, their lawyers, if they even had counsel, how difficult it was to call out. The calls were expensive. You couldn't leave a message there. You know, people were used to communicating by internet and social media. All of that was denied them in detention. Uh, people were being transferred from one detention center to the other without notice. And so they lost contact with their families, with their lawyers. They couldn't gather their evidence because of that. And so she basically said that, you know, increased the risk that they would be sent back to face persecution. Um, and for all of those reasons found that their security of the person under section seven was infringed. And then she looked at, um, you know, whether the, the, you know, those infringements were in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. Uh, she found that the law was overly broad, um, especially when you consider that the objective of the agreement was to share responsibility between two countries that abided by and respected those international human rights conventions. Um, and she found it was grossly disproportionate for basically the same reasons. And um, so that was her section seven argument. Having decided that the law was, uh, violating the charter. She said, I'm not going to deal with section 15. How do I feel about that? In some respects, I think it was pretty smart of her. Um, because, you know, the argument, you know, around, even though it's, you know, I think we had a pretty strong argument that uh, women who were making claims based on gender based persecution had a, a very tough time making their case in the United States. There were exceptions. There were courts that found their way around AB who, um, you know, were accepting uh, certain women. And it wasn't as airtight, if you will, legally as the, as the, you know, the facts that everyone, almost everyone sent back to the States was immediately put into jail. Maybe that's why. The other reason is, I mean, judges typically, once they've made a finding on a certain issue, and they don't have to uh, go into another analysis, um, they won't um, just because there's, there's no judicial or legal need to do so. I think it does make it harder to appeal her decision, the fact that she didn't go into section 15. Um, so, you know, in a, in a sense, it was disappointing because we had a lot of evidence on gender in our case. But personally, I think it was smart of her in many ways to not go there. She didn't have to go there. Um, I can't remember if that was your question or if I answered it. No, but, that was great. Yeah, anyway. and I, I think you're right that uh, she did a very thorough job of analyzing the violations under Section 7. And uh, um, that in itself is enough to say that it's unconstitutional so she didn't need to do that kind of in-depth analysis with regard and you to compare her her decision to justice Phelan, you know 10 years ago he went on and on about all sorts of things that were wrong in the united states her decision was much more compact um much you know much more to the point and and as i say i think legally much more airtight so i mean it'll be interesting to see if it is appealed uh and if it is appealed you know, how the Court of Appeal will deal with it. But I thought it was a very smart, smartly written decision. I wanted to go back a little bit to talk about the litigation strategy, especially on the part of the government. I understand that the government had, was very vociferous in their opposition um, during the litigation. I wonder if you could comment a little bit on the strategies that they took, not just their substantive legal arguments, but the kinds of litigation strategies and tactics that they turn to? I think, first of all, they didn't want this thing ever to get to, to a hearing. And so they tried to stall us as much as possible. So, so for example, we um, even, well, okay, I'll, I'll talk about something else later. But so they, they, first of all, tried to get the public interest litigants struck, uh, CCR, Amnesty, and the Canadian Council of Churches. Um, so they brought a motion and we had to argue that and, and they lost. We were granted public interest litigant status. Um, there's a federal court rule that says you can only have, except with the discretion of the court, five expert 
witnesses. We had nine expert witnesses. And so they tried to strike four of our experts on the basis that that was more than five. And they lost that argument. Then they challenged two of our most important uh, expert witnesses, uh, Professor Deborah Anker, who's a professor at Harvard, one of the most respected academics in the United States on immigration and refugee law. And they challenged her on the basis that she had once written to or signed her name to a letter uh, basically asking the Canadian government to suspend the Safe Third Country Agreement. And so the government argued that she was not partial and experts are supposed to be impartial. Um, they also tried to strike um, Karen Masalo, who was our expert on gender, who's a professor at the University of California in Hastings uh, in the States, um, who, whose evidence was really remarkable. I mean, both of them were, were great you know, for our side. And they argued that she should be struck because some of the uh, information that, um, she is involved with an organization that deals with gender-based claims um, because they provide advice to lawyers on how you can, you know, try to argue these cases. And so they said, well, she had contradicted herself because she, on one hand, said it's almost impossible for women to be accepted on this basis. And yet here she is putting out information on how they can be accepted. Anyway, both of those uh, arguments were not accepted by the court. Um, and both were accepted as experts. The, the judge basically said, look at, um, they're not being, they're, they're experts because of their knowledge about this aspect of US immigration law. You know, the fact that one of them wrote a letter 20 years ago signed by 300 other academics doesn't make her uh, any less of an expert. Uh, and so on that basis, and, and on uh, Musalo, they said they couldn't point out anything in her affidavit that should be struck or that was, you know, contradicting anything. And she basically said, just because you can advise lawyers on strategy doesn't mean that you're any less of an expert on how gender claims are treated in the US. So they tried to block us in every which way. Um, at the hearing, um, they made a number of arguments um, regarding section uh, seven and section 15, which we're focusing on now. Um, one of their arguments was, uh, well, look at the, the Canada is not violating anyone's rights. It's the United States that's violating anyone's rights. And, and our charter doesn't apply to how the United States treats refugees. Um, the judge found that Canadian border service agency officers at the border know very well what happens to the people who are refused under the safe third country agreement they notify the u.s authorities that this person is coming back to the states they basically put them in the hands of those authorities uh, who take these people immediately into custody and then take them into detention put them into detention so canada was not playing a passive role in all of this. They, they were active participants in what was happening to these people. And since that liberty right was so critical to her judgment, um, that argument didn't fly. They also argued that, um, you know, uh, there's all sorts of remedies that people have if they're, you know, if you're a woman, for example, who's facing gang violence or or, you know, domestic violence. And because of Jeff Sessions' intervention in AB, you know, you're, you're got a hopeless chance of being accepted. Um, they said, well, there's exceptions, you know, you can, um, you can get a stay, for example, just like Miss, uh, the woman from El Salvador got a stay uh, uh, of removal. So that's, that's open to the people. Um, the thing about, about her, <laughs> is, as I said, she contacted a lawyer before she came to the border. That lawyer contacted the Canadian Council for Refugees and Amnesty International. So before she came back to the border, all of her legal, you know, her, her application for a stay had already been drafted. Um, she had, you know, two huge human rights organizations behind her and a lawyer. 
Um, she got to the border. She was ordered to return to the States. She immediately filed all of this motion material, which not obviously not everyone who comes to the border is going to be that well prepared. Um, then, I mean, getting back to the government, the judge said, okay, I'll hear this tomorrow, the next day. Um, the government would not agree to allow her to remain in Canada overnight. Uh, pending the, the stay motion. So her lawyers, again, she was, you know, well represented, had to bring a second motion to get them to not to remove her pending this hearing. So they, anyway, so they argued that. Um, and the judge, I think, quite rightly said, look, most people coming to the border are not like her. They're not, they're not that well represented and they're not well prepared. Um, they argued, well, you can, or, you can get a, what's called a temporary resident permit, which allows someone entry to Canada, even if they're inadmissible. The same argument applies. You know, you really can't do that, uh, A, if you don't speak English or French and you're traumatized because of everything you've gone through and you're dealing with these officers in uniforms um, and you don't have legal counsel, there's no way you're going you're gonna to do that. So that was, you know, one of their big arguments as well, um, which, which did not fly. Yeah, it's remarkable to see the different uh, turns of arguments and strategies that the government took. I wondered if you could comment or speculate as to what do you think the government will do. The decision by Justice McDonald um, gave the government six months to sort this out. Um, it's violating the charter. You have six months to decide what to do. Was it um, disappointing to know that she didn't order a suspension of the STCA right away? You know, arguably right now it is still um, in effect. It's still operational. Um, how do you think um, the government will respond? Uh, well, two things. Uh, I don't think we were surprised that she suspended uh, her order for a period of time. That's something the courts have done in the past. Um, when uh, the security certificate provisions uh, in the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act were challenged, uh, the court gave the government a year in that case to get its act together. Um, you know, this was a big deal. This is a really big, uh, this is an agreement that affects thousands of people. Um, there's a lot of resources put into this. The government put tons of resources into defending it um so it's a big decision and i anyway I, I wasn't i don't think any of us were surprised that she suspended her judgment for six months what um the government's going to do is a really good question they have several options uh already um the public interest litigants have written to the minister and to the prime minister uh urging uh, the government to immediately suspend the safe third country agreement saying look at this is a very clear judgment about what's happening to people who we're sending back. And we are complicit in that uh, as a country, as a government. Um, so there is no excuse to continue um, this, this agreement um, in light of this judgment. So they can take six months. That's one thing that they could do. Um, they could appeal. Um, as I said, I, I think it's a pretty good judgment. Uh, the Federal Court of Appeal is not well known for being sympathetic to immigrants and refugees, although there's a couple of new judges on the Court of Appeal who are, who are pretty good. Um, but that's an option for the government. Whether they will appeal, whether they will suspend the agreement, um, I think there are political considerations that the government will take into account. Um, I've heard two uh, you know, different uh, theories on what the government will do. One of them is, you know, the people of Canada are not open right now to anyone coming across the U.S. border given COVID, um, particularly refugees. And so there may be a sense that you know, the optics of that are not good if the government simply says we're going to, you know, we're going to stop this agreement and suspend it and let anybody come in uh, 
you know, who makes a claim at the border. Uh, I don't think that's a valid reason. Um, anyone who's making a claim coming out from the States would be required to quarantine, just like any other traveler. Um, there are ways to, you know, protect the health of Canadians uh, and still protect the rights of these people. So I don't think that's a valid reason, but politically it might happen. The other political argument going the other way is that this gets the government out of the um, whatever, the predicament of people crossing the border, as we talked to earlier, irregularly. If they don't have to deal with the Safe Third Country Agreement, they're not going to cross, you know, every which where, you know, uh, in, into Canada from the U.S. Uh, there'd be no reason for them to do that. It will be much more orderly, in fact. We'll know everybody who's coming across. It's the way the system is supposed to work. And the government, I think, could say, look at this judge kind of, you know, we're just doing what the judge said. Um, the judge said that, that this is violating people's charter rights. This is going to stop people from crossing at Roxham Road, you know, into Quebec. Um, and, you know, and, and, and so in, in the other theory is that this is an out for the government. And this is a great opportunity for them to get out of the Safe Third Country Agreement and say, you know, we were, we were required to do so by the court. You know, really what they're going to do is anyone's guess. Um, we'll see. Um, any advice you have for students interested in practicing in this area of law, knowing that many of the listeners are students? Uh, sure. Um, immigration and refugee law is a great area of law in my view. And I think I would say that for several reasons. Um, one, just in terms of the law, it's a very interesting area. As you know, there's, there's been a ton of jurisprudence uh, in, in immigration in recent years, including uh, a number of significant Supreme Court of Canada cases. Um, so, and, and just, you know, the, the act itself and the regulations are thick and complicated and, you know, with lots of opportunity, I think, for interpretation. So I think for just from a legal perspective, immigration and refugee law is really interesting. Um, and I mean, I think just on a personal level, when you practice in this area, you meet people from all over the world. It exposes you to different cultures and different people. I think it gives you a greater appreciation, uh, in my view, of really how similar we all are, regardless of where we come from. Um, you hear a lot of interesting stories and you meet a lot of people who are very courageous, who've been through a lot in their life and come through it at the other end and it's inspiring. And you're helping people. Um, you're, you know, you're on the side of the angels. You can go to bed at night and have a reasonably good sleep. So um, there's lots of reasons why I recommend it. And finally, I'd say it's a very collegial bar. Um, the Immigration and Refugee Bar are very close-knit, really helpful. Um, so it's a nice community to be part of. Thank you, Michael. This has been super fascinating. I just want to acknowledge you and the large team of advocates that have been working on this case for a number of years. And also, you know, to people behind the scenes that were not listed as counsel, but who lobbied the government, who wrote letters, who... Um, advocated um, through various means. Um, this is a very uh, surprising for me, but very positive development in refugee law in Canada. And I think it really um, upholds our reputation as a place that protects refugee rights. So it's a good day and not a lot of good news lately, but I think it's a, it's a really great news story. You know, you know it, um, I, I just want to say it was, I, I mean, it was a, a real team effort. This case went on for years. I mean, it was originally filed in 2017. It was argued in 2019. The decision came back in 2020. Um, it was a really wonderful group of people to work with. Um, everyone pulled their weight. Um, everyone got along. Um, you know, it, it, was, it was a joy. I think everyone on, on that team feels that way. Um, you know, the day that we started the hearing, there was a big protest outside, the media were there. Uh, you're right, um, all sorts of people were engaged in this case, a lot of support, a lot of these people who provided affidavits, 
Um, and I think as well, the individual uh, applicants, I think deserve a lot of credit for their courage. Uh, it's not easy to challenge a government, uh, especially if you're a refugee claimant, you're very vulnerable uh, in that situation. And so really kudos to them, uh, I think, for coming forward. Um, as I say, the 10 years ago, we couldn't get anyone to do that. This guy was going to stay in the United States. So, um, you know, that was really remarkable. And um, so, yeah, it had a happy ending so far, knock on wood, and, and we'll see what happens. Um, but certainly from a, a lawyer's perspective, it was a really great experience. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing how things happen in the next six months and yeah. maybe I'll invite you back to talk about the fallout uh, post uh, yeah. six it months. It would be my pleasure. Okay, thank you so much Michael. It's been okay. uh, wonderful having you talk about this case. Take care. Migration Conversations is created and hosted by me, Professor Jamie Liu, and produced by University of Ottawa Tech Law Fellow June Gleed. This podcast was made possible with the guidance and assistance of University of Ottawa Tech Law Fellow Ritesh Kotak, Carleton University graduate student Rachel McNally, as well as the generous support of Carleton University and the University of Ottawa shared online projects and initiatives. You can find more Migration Conversations episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube with closed captions. Thank you for listening and a special thank you for all the guests who have shared their experiences publicly.